0: All right, brother, let's jump in. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun, and today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Tim Pahuda. Tim is a formal pro ball player who has now transitioned into life mapping, and we're going to learn a little bit about all of that and what that means for you. During the course of this podcast so first and foremost brother i just want to welcome you on thanks for being here and uh Jason, th- th-
1: yeah thanks so much for having me man i really appreciate it
0: yeah man i'm stoked to talk to you and uh, i'd like to start and just get a little bit of background on you man tell me a little bit about uh, your story coming up how you became the man that you are today what started it all
1: yeah right on i i mean i would say that love started it all but let's <laughs> i will start with baseball because <laughs> it's kind of a smaller topic I, um, yeah, I fell in love with baseball when I was when I was a kid. My dad is a huge fan of baseball. It's, I, I feel like that's how it often goes. And um, I decided when I was very young that I was going to make baseball my life. That's what I wanted to do. That was going to be my job. And um, you know, most you know people pick jobs when they're kids, firemen, et cetera. I chose baseball, and I <laughs> and I just decided to chase that a hundred percent and. I did that for 30 years, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I retired from professional baseball when I was 30 years old, having really never played beyond double A baseball and um, the minor leagues.
0: Gotcha. So, at what age did you know that's what you wanted to do? Just uh, from the get go, that was your thing? You you had a passion for it or, or something? Yeah, you I loved it. I would
1: say, I mean, I think we, my, my dad and I used to watch baseball a lot, and I, You know, those guys are on TV. Those are regular people. They're people that, you know, they're kids that grew up and they that's what they do for their job. And I think I, at whatever age that I learned that I was probably six, it was within time when I decided that that's, that's what I wanted to be my job. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I knew that I loved playing baseball ever since I, you know, held a bat and the glove and being outside and the grass and everything, everything about it, the teammates, the friendship, like, uh, yeah baseball is just an amazing game, and I, I I was lucky enough to play it for that thirty years to be honest
0: yeah that's amazing I know a lot of people would love to be able to say they had to play a game for thirty years right right yeah exactly
1: um, when I left that game i was I, I was essentially i would say call myself lost. Um, I'd wrap my my entire identity was wrapped around baseball from that from that time since I was a young kid. It was the only thing I really ever wanted to do, it was the only thing I ever was concentrating on. I kind of had it in the back of my mind all the time. I was essentially just obsessed with it. <clears throat> and go ahead.
0: No, I was just gonna say, um, you said you're essentially a- obsessed with it. Now, I mean, I know a lot of kids I grew up with and of course myself, I, you know, we all grew up playing baseball, but I, I don't really remember anyone, you know, using a word like obsession to describe it. I mean, it was more, uh, you know, more something that they did for fun. But you, you said as a kid, you had this obsession. Um, why the difference yeah. for you at that point? Was it just something that anchored you to your father, do you think? Or was there something inside you that really wanted to get into that game?
1: Yeah, I think both. I I definitely think it's a big anchoring like connection point with me and my dad. It was one of the things that we've we still connect on sports and baseball. Was our that was our he was my he's my first coach and he'll be my last coach. He's still my coach. Um <clears throat> Yeah, the, I think that's a huge that's a huge part of why I love baseball because it was such a bonding thing between my father and I.
0: Oh, for sure. Still is. For sure. So did you um, have plans early on of, you know, going, you know, as far as you could with the sport and, um, you know, seeing, you know, how far you could take it? Or was it just something yes. that you enjoyed with dad?
1: Um, no, it was it was something that both my dad and I, from the point that I said that I like wanted to play professional baseball, I wanted to take it seriously and like really do it. My dad was on board 100%, and he, like, obviously, he knows how hard that is. He was, like, he was an adult at the time, so he understood way more than I did about how difficult the road is. Sure. And he was basically like, well, you're going to have to work your ass off, (laughs) and I'm going to be the guy that makes you do it. And he he basically, like, he was my, you know, he's my co-pilot. He's made me work even when I didn't want to work, you know what I mean? And I didn't always love him for that in the moment, but – I can be, couldn't be happier with the upbringing I had that was like hundred percent support and hundred percent like bear down on me based on like, he's basically holding me really accountable to what I'm saying I want to do with my life.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a real gift when you think about it. It's funny that you, that you framed it that way because you know, now going into the wellness world, the personal development world, it seems like a lot of people are seeking that on some level. But by the same token, they don't really want to hear the truth, right? They want to hear the truth to a point, you know, Right, right but when right, it right, really right. gets down to it. It's like, uh, well, I thought we were friends. Why are you saying these mean things to me? And, you know, right. and the reality <laughs> right. is it's like, no, I'm just, I want to tell you the truth because you said you were committed to this thing. It's, um, right. it's yeah. interesting. I'm being here. your
1: best friend right now. You just don't
0: realize it. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't feel that way. Right. And that's, right, right. instead of that, uh, I'm sure there are times where that strained your relationship with him. You guys obviously came came through and survived that pretty well, though. Um, so you guys uh, are still pretty tight today, yeah?
1: Yeah, we've had our moments, but we're definitely like we're to the level of best friends now. I, yeah, I love my dad. I'm I'm going home to New Jersey here in a couple of weeks. I can't wait to see him.
0: Nice man. Was, <clears throat> and so, did you grow up on the East Coast uh, playing ball on the East Coast? You're in uh, Denver right now, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. I live in Denver now, but I grew up in New Jersey and I went to Seton Hall University to play baseball. And um, that was a like after I um, was in high school, I was drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates and I was faced with this kind of big decision at 18 years old to play professional baseball for the Pirates or to go to Seton Hall, which I had already committed to like prior to my senior season.
2: hmm.
1: Um, I ended up choosing to go to Seton Hall and I was there for four years and then I was drafted again as a senior by the Washington Nationals. Nice. But that that uh, decision that I faced in high school when I was 18 years old, like has, I wouldn't say that it, well, yeah, it has shaped, it's definitely started, it shaped my views on money,
0: I would say. It shaped your views on money, how, in what way?
1: I wasn't drafted at a particularly high round. I think it was the 21st round. Mm-hmm. And... I kept playing all summer, and I really was – I mean, I was committed to Seton Hall, and from the time I was drafted, I, I mean, obviously it's a, it was a huge thing, but being as late as it was in the rounds, I wasn't expecting a large uh, signing bonus, and I was still pretty committed to going to college. And then as the summer went on and on, I had workouts with the Pirates. They kept coming to watch all my games, and eventually right before uh, I had to make this decision – like there's a day that you have to decide, and right before I made the decision, they made their final offer. it was a big number and <clears throat> it was like the it was to this date it's the largest amount of money that anybody's offered me in like one big chunk mm-hmm. and I said no to the money uh, kind of based on the plan that I would go to school, get drafted again after my junior year and sign for more money. like the money wasn't really a thing right now I just put it off right. Uh, when I went to school, I already mentioned I was drafted as a senior, which you kind of lose all of your leverage at that point for negotiating. It's like, you can either come play baseball for us or you can just get a job somewhere.
0: So as a senior in college, you mean?
1: Right. Yeah. After my senior in college, I was drafted. So they're basically just
0: saying, you know, this is your last chance to play in college. So, you know, take what we're going to give you or else kind of a thing.
1: Yeah. It was my last chance to play after college. It was basically like, we've drafted you. We have your rights you can either play with us or you can just go get a job.
0: So how does that that work? I mean, a lot of us, you know, you know, on the outside looking in, we know a little bit about the surface level of the game in terms of, you know, how you advance through the ranks, but Mm. you know, behind the scenes, I'm sure there's a lot of things that people aren't aware of and and don't know about. And when you said you were drafted, you know, as a high school player and then went and then decided to go into college, what does that process look like?
1: Well, the negotiating process was interesting because, you know, I had never been sitting at a at business meetings at a table with, you know, administration from a baseball team before. So that was, I mean, obviously all of that's a new process to me. But generally when a team drafts you, and there's a MLB has a draft every year since June, and there's like 50 rounds in the draft. So every team gets to pick 50 guys from college, from high school, from international drafts kind of from all over the place. Um, There's conditions for uh, like what uh, like you have to be either senior in high school or after your junior year in college you're eligible for the draft. Um, And there's some other rules with junior colleges too but that's that can get complicated I won't get into that. So once a team drafts you they have your they have negotiating rights with you for a year long period. And you basically have to sign with them within that year the contract that's offered to everybody like everybody signs the same contract it's called the uniform player contract it's a seven-year contract that every minor league player signs most people don't know this but even though you're drafted like and you're playing for a big league team and all of my checks came from the washington nationals for eight years the pay structure for the minor leagues has been set up for like years and it's based on this uniform player contract that everybody signs, like I said. So the Washington Nationals, once I signed, had my rights for seven years, essentially. And they could put me at any level they want. The pay structure is kind of laid out. And they pay you only during the baseball season, not during spring training and not in the offseason. So even though it is a full-time job in terms of uh, what's physically required of it, I would say, it's it's not paid like a full-time job. It's actually treated seasonally by the MLB. Okay. So they treat minor league baseball players like seasonal employees. And they pay them a salary only during the five months of the season. Gotcha. My starting salary for that, uh, like my my first contract, my first year, I was in what's called rookie ball down in Florida. And I was paid $10,050 a month for those five months. Okay. So before taxes, you know, $5,000 I made that year. As a Washington national.
0: So the the way the contract is structured, you no matter where you come in, you everyone signs this uniform player contract. It locks you That's in right. for seven years. And, That's right. th- and there's a like a standard pay scale or they adjust the pay scale depending on where they feel like, you know, they're gonna end up using you or or that sort of the thing.
1: Uh no, it's standard, it's a calculation based on what level you're at and how many years of experience you have. Okay. Um there's little raises built in, but they're like $50 a month. So it's not like huge increments. We're talking about small sums of money.
0: Okay. So then how does it happen when, you know, you have, you know, the mega star coming out of high school or whatever and they sign this massive contract? How does that right. override or or interact with this particular initial contract that you guys sign?
1: Um it's it acts as a separate piece. So it's an adder. OK, um, the, the, that player still signs a seven year contract and they just are given that sum of money up front. They still get paid monthly the same amount as anybody else at the level with the experience that they have.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's just over and above, <laughs> almost like bonus performance type. Right. And something. the
1: idea is a person who's like a prospect. Here's a whole bunch of money to get you through your time in the minor leagues. And then, you know, you'll be making a whole bunch of money once you make it to the big leagues right what so kind of gets you through your time in the minor leagues of course if you sign like as a senior out of high school or a senior out of college you know you don't sign for any money and you're basically just scraping by as, <laughs> as much as you can for sure. as long as you can
0: for sure so what was it like being in that uh in that environment you know coming out of high school or college and then going in Playing with some of the guys that you know, people watch on television, and I'm sure people you idolized as a kid growing up. What was it like for you to step into that environment?
1: I I mean, I would say it was a little bit like the frog in the boiling pot, as it's kind of (laughs) gradual, but but there were obviously like bump ups in temperature Mm -hmm. of the pot. I would say like going from high school to college was a big difference. It was a big jump. Everybody in college that was on our team. To start with was the best player at their high school so that's a big jump and everybody on the teams that we're playing against were the best players at their high schools so automatically that's that was like a big that was a big jump up so there's a learning curve there i, I had a terrible year in my freshman year in college
0: just in terms of uh, skill level and adjustment
1: yeah i would say just numbers and i think i was intimidated to start and just kind of you know not as confident as i was senior in high school, which is kind of understandable.
0: Sure. Sure. So how did um, you, how did you, um, how did you end up handling that? You know, as a young man going to that scenario where, you know, maybe you felt like you weren't measuring up is kind of what it sounds like. You know, what was going through your head at that time?
1: Yeah. My, my freshman year was tough. So it was a, it was a grind for me. I, I mean, I don't think my numbers ended up being that terrible, but in my mind I wanted, it, I wanted it to be a lot better than it was. So, I would say it was a, a, you know, if you had to look back at the end of each season and call it a success or a failure as an entire season, I I think I would say that I failed that season. But I also learned so much during that failure that it's kind of a success
0: in a way. Sure. Of course, you always learn more from the failures, right? So um, when you're looking back on it, you know, as you start to advance through the years in the league, like what were some of the lessons that you were taking into the you know, the subsequent years as you were gaining and gaining experience.
1: Humility. <laughs> I, was, I think I've been learning to be humble for a long time. Baseball is definitely a humbling game, especially in the offensive end where, you know, you're generally unsuccessful mm-hmm. seven out of 10 times. If you're really good.
2: Right. <laughs> so,
1: uh, and I was, you know, unsuccessful seven and a half times out of 10, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think, yeah, it's a humbling game. I, I, the better I got and the more levels I moved up and the higher it was, my, my confidence was higher, obviously. But it's it's just a game that humbles you no matter what, no matter who you are.
0: Sure, of course.
1: So humility is a big, big lesson. And then the number two rules of baseball that I always talk about, there's, there's two rules that they apply to life just as much as they apply to baseball. And it's keep your eye on the ball, number one. I hate seeing people get hit in the stands because they're not watching the ball. It's like, that's the number <laughs> one rule. You got to watch the ball. It what my dad taught me growing up. Never take your eye off the ball. <clears throat> and uh, the number two rule is to stay balanced, which we already kind of talked about with the technological difficulties this, <laughs> this afternoon. You got to stay, like, flexible. You got to stay loose. You got to stay balanced so that when things happen, you can respond.
0: Right, of course. Yeah, it trips me out when I go to the ball game and people are just kind of, you know... In their phones or talking to their oh. buddies, not paying attention at all. I mean, I've you know. seen so
1: many people get hit over the course of my career that it's like, oh God, I almost don't even like watching foul balls. But it's like you can't look away from it going <laughs> in the stands, and you—it's like, oh.
0: yeah, it's like a train wreck. You know, you know something exactly. bad's going to happen. It's just a matter of when.
1: Yeah, yeah, like everybody, everybody's on the field knows exactly what's going to happen because Every, everybody <laughs> on the field's looking at the ball. <laughs> And everybody just collectively holds their breath as the ball is like rifling <laughs> into the stands. It's, don't hit a kid! Don't hit a kid!
0: Right! Don't hit a kid! Don't hit it! Hopefully, someone throws up a naked hand, right, and takes a stinger.
1: <laughs> exactly. Jeez. It's great when you see somebody that was paying attention and makes a great catch. You're like, oh yeah, right on.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's
0: always fun for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was at a game in uh, Richmond, Virginia. This actually was a big news story. there's, there's a woman who had her child with her. Uh, and she was right above our dugout, uh, the visiting side at Richmond because I was playing for Harrisburg at the time. And there was this rope of a foul ball like right over our dugout, like skipped off the top of the dugout. And she had her baby in her hand, like she was just holding her baby, had a glove in her left hand. And she snagged that thing, <laughs> no problem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> it was great. insane. The
1: video was like, the video went viral. Uh, she was on like 2020. I think being interviewed was, was pretty great. I was right there. I saw the catch. I was applauding. Yeah, keeping your eye on the ball, staying balanced. I think when I left baseball, I didn't have a ball to look at anymore. And I was still – like I still mentally feel like I'm playing a game because I I guess that's just the attitude that I have. Like I'd rather just be having fun and playing a game. But with life, I didn't really – I didn't feel like I I have a ball. Like what's the ball in life? Making money, filling up my bank account? I thought that was the ball. Hmm. So after I left baseball, when I wasn't really making money at all, I started chasing the ball – of money, doing, making decisions, doing things—just what would make me more money, basically. Right. <clears throat> so I took a, a job that I wasn't particularly excited about. Um, it was a sales position. I'm really grateful that I had it now. Again, looking back at the time, I really didn't want it. <clears throat> so I took the sales position, uh, working for a lighting manufacturer, and I started doing lighting sales. Um, I was basically just. Doing whatever I could to make money, right? Sell as many lights as I could. Um, I transferred with that company out to Los Angeles, and I was still I was managing sales on the West Coast for like the western third of the U.S. Still traveling quite a bit, and I was pretty miserable. Like, well, this is what it felt like. I had been chasing my passion for a really long time in baseball. I loved it. I loved playing the game. I loved the competition of it. I love the teammates. There was plenty of it. I didn't like as, that went along with it, but that was just it. it went along with it. Right. Like it went along with the thing I loved and I could deal with it. I didn't care. Like, Oh, you're only going to pay me $5,000 this year. That's pretty shitty, but okay, I guess I'll just make it work somehow and substitute teach in the off season. Mm-hmm. Which is what I did, by the way. <clears throat> um, the pendulum swung the other way and I decided I would just pad my bank account. And after two and a half years of being with that company, doing that, I was, I, I would call myself morally bankrupt, but I was lost.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: really didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know what I was aiming at. I didn't know what the point was and I was ready to end my life. <clears throat> and, um, I didn't do that. I had, a it was also about the same time that I tore my meniscus playing tennis And I had a surgery and I found an issue uh, with my heart that led to six weeks of going back, back and forth to just a bunch of different doctors and panicking about my life, Mm -hmm. not wanting to lose it. And just intellectually, I know that from a place of, I want to die to a place of being scared. If there's something there, there's a reason that I'm scared to die. And that means I didn't, didn't want to do it. Like I didn't. I'm just unhappy with the way that I'm spending my time, right? And I'm spending my time like that. that's a responsibility piece that I don't think I was taking, and I it's like it's up to me how I was choosing to spend my time, and I was choosing to spend my time just making money, mm. just doing things that I didn't care about to make money. So and tell, I go ahead.
0: So tell me a little bit about that mindset that you were carrying, um, you know, coming out of the the baseball career. You know, you were talking about how this had been your passion for so many years and you're, you know, you're, you're not making what you wanted to make, but yet you were following this, this passion of yours. And, you know, there was a lot of good and bad and ups and downs that came with that, but there came a point where it sounds like you just said, you know, enough is enough. It's time for me to move on and do some other things. And you said the pendulum swung the other way. So you started chasing the money, right. Going after, you know, how you could, you know, earn more or, or, you know, sort of bridge that gap that you were experiencing in the past And what happened in that time frame inside your head to make you get to the point where you felt like, you know, suicide wasn't an option for you?
1: That's an interesting question. I, I, I think it was just a, like I was isolating myself. I will say that. I think that was a big piece. I felt isolated in Los Angeles. I felt disconnected from the sense of community. I think one of the biggest things that I got during my baseball career was this big community. Every year I would go somewhere florida for spring training and there'd be 150 people that are part of my family we all have the w on our chest and we all play for the washington nationals and we've all got some crazy baseball story that ends up with us being drafted by the nationals and us playing together as part of this family and i always had a baseball family mm-hmm. every year you know guys were, new guys would come in some guys would leave but it was a community that i was always a part of right When I left baseball, I'd moved back to my parents' house again because I really hadn't – it's not like I'd saved any money during this – during that minor league career. And I had that my family community, which is – it's huge. Uh, I mean, my family's everything. I've already talked about my dad, but I have three sisters and a brother and a mom, and they've all – like three of my sisters are or two of my sisters are having kids, and they're all married. And, like, my family's just growing, and that's a big – it's a huge community that I was part of when I was in New Jersey, too. They were always all around. Right. When I left New Jersey and went to L.A., I, didn't, I really didn't know anybody out there. So I had kind of isolated myself, kind of disconnected myself, chasing this career or money or wanting to see other things or travel around different parts of the country. I didn't like who I was, um, and I wanted to leave.
0: When you say you didn't like who you up. were, what, what do you mean by that? You didn't like the results you were creating? You didn't like yourself as a person? What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I didn't like myself as a person. And, and I felt like a failure after my baseball career, I'll be honest with you. I wanted to play major league baseball. It was my goal, and I played double A baseball, and played in a couple of spring training big league games, but I didn't play in the big leagues. So I felt like a failure. And I know that there was a lot of people following my career and what I was doing and my progress and I realized they were supporting me now, but I saw it as a disappointment when I didn't make it Do not, I mean, obviously to myself, but to everybody else, and I felt like a disappointment and a failure mm-hmm. and that you know, it didn't make me want to be a part of the community, of the community that I had,
2: of right.
0: my
1: family. I pulled out.
0: Yeah. And this was happening. You said this happened when you had moved to the West coast.
1: I would say that it, it culminated with me moving to the West Coast, me sticking up my hand for that job when it became an opportunity. It was like a way to get out with somebody else paying the bills and sending me as far away as I could possibly get right. in the United States, pretty much, from New Jersey to Los Angeles. Yeah, for sure. It's like you can't get a lot further than that.
0: That's two different worlds, man. I, I can relate. I moved, uh, I moved from the South to L.A., and that was uh, an eye opening experience. And I, yeah. like you, I knew no you know one didn't know the area, and uh, it was tough, man. I'll be honest with you. And I can understand how you know if you're not comfortable with yourself in that moment, you could you know you could really feel isolated and alone, like you're the only one you know on your side, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it was- and it's not like I'm obviously I'm I don't I i do not i do not like who I am. I don't care who I am. So I'm not out there. I'm not like putting myself out there to be connected in a community in los angeles or wherever i am i'm just kind of staying in my apartment
2: yeah going just to existing. business
1: meetings making trips when i need to make them but i'm not like you know yeah. i ended up with a decent tennis community out there again through sports like the way that i have found communities since i was a kid and uh but i wouldn't say that they were they was it was just that it was just that show up play tennis and leave You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You weren't having any deep conversations at the tennis court, I take it?
1: (laughs) No, really. Well, I'm like sucking my breath and like out of shape, and I weigh like 300 pounds and just trying to get back in shape. No, I was not. (laughs) I wasn't having deep conversations. Yeah, wow. Yeah, physically, that's something that I didn't really mention that, but I I played a lot of my career around 250 pounds, which I think is heavy for my frame. It's heavier than I am now, and I – Coupled with kind of bad dietary habits and an attitude of not caring about myself, I treated myself that way, including what I put inside my body and right. that led to a lot of weight gain after I uh, retired.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing how much um, the physical piece is tied to the, the vision that you see for yourself, right? Like, uh, if you see yourself as not having much value, then why would you take the extra time to put in the work or put in the quality food to make yourself, you know, show up in the world, you know, better than right. you see yourself being, right? I see a lot of people struggle with that.
1: You're right. Yeah. Why would I take care of myself? I don't even like myself. Exactly. Like, I had that attitude. I know that attitude, and I know it exists. It's terrible.
0: So, was there a point, you know, you you'd said that you had experienced some health issues. Was there a point with... um with the health issues that caused you to see that differently that you specifically remember?
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say that it was like one particular thing during that time period, but it was definitely within that like six weeks period. When I was on, I was on the beach in New Jersey with my family, um, right before I was supposed to have surgery. And it had been like, like I said, it had been like six weeks of going to doctors up till this point. I was supposed to fly back from Jersey to LA and get the surgery. And she was, um, my doctor was still calling me with, like if it was going to be all right for basically results from a test that I was waiting for while I was on the beach in New Jersey. I didn't care. I don't care about myself. Why, why would I take care of myself was kind of coming to light at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing that like, I I don't like the way I'm spending my time. I hate, you know, it's my choice and I'm choosing things that I don't like and then I don't like my life. And it's like, well, it's my own responsibility. I'm not like a victim here. And I, in there, I realized that, okay, Hypothetically, if I did care about myself, like, and I did want to live a happy life, like I say I do, what would I? What would I do? What would I do differently then than I would do now that I don't like that I don't care, or I want it to be over?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then I just started redesigning the way I was doing things, and I started with diet and sleep and like water intake and like super simple things that are data driven, so it wasn't like an emotional thing yet. Right. I was just like, I'm going to get back in shape and feel confident again about the way that I look, kind of shallow, kind of superficial. And it led to deeper thoughts about like, well, how, what, what is all this about? Like, well, how, what drove all of this? And when you asked me at the very beginning of this podcast, what, you know, what drove, what started this whole story? And I said, love, like that's, it was really about sports and baseball and connection and my dad and it was all love-driven. Like, how do I, and I think when I was a kid, when I was younger than I can even remember, I decided that the way to bring love into my life, the way to get love, um, my interpretation of love, congratulations, bats on the back, like, good jobs, way to go, buddies, was to be a winner. And baseball was an outlet for me to be a winner at the ultimate level. Mm-hmm. And it was about bringing love into my life. Um, on some basic level.
0: Yeah, I can see that for sure. I think sure. we're
1: all kind of driven by love and fear. Mm-hmm. On some level.
0: Definitely. Definitely. When you how do you relate this to your um to your health scare though when you're talking about uh the love piece and you had no love for yourself at this point, right? You're it sounds like your the love that you're describing was based on an externality like you were waiting for people to validate you. Yes. You know from the yes. outside in. And here you are. It was a heart issue, if I remember correctly. Yes.
1: That's right. That's right. Yes.
0: So walk us through that and um, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what you mean when you say this love thing that you're experiencing.
1: (laughs) Um, So logically, I've always been a pretty logical thinker. It was actually like my best class in college was logic. I dominated logic. (laughs) 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 But logically, if I didn't love myself, which I didn't, I was sure about that. Then anybody in my life who were to tell me that they loved me, right, which was a a lot of people, is a lot of people still, I didn't believe them. So I wasn't accepting of that love because I just didn't believe, I was just dismiss it as they didn't know me that well. Mm -hmm. And I know myself better than anybody knows me. So those people, yeah, you love me because you don't know me that well. Oh, wow. is in my head. So I'm not genuinely accepting of love. So I don't actually have love in my life Mm. and I'm I'm shut off to it. I was shut off to it. And that, I mean, that's logically why I started taking care of myself because I can't accept love unless I love myself. So I need to become a person that I actually love.
0: Mm. And the only
1: person that can actually create that person is me. Wow. And that's when I was like, okay, I need to redesign this thing from the ground up.
0: That's pretty amazing. And I'm
1: still still that's, working on it. Well, <laughs> it's yeah. not like I've figured it out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm aren't we all, right? <laughs> yeah, we're we're right. all in the same boat, right? Yeah, that's, that's interesting, on the way that you frame that, though, when you're talking about uh, refusing to accept someone's affection or love because the reason is they don't know you, right? There's this implication that you know some really deep, dark, evil thing about yourself that they don't or that they right. don't see, right? And that because of that, you're not worthy of receiving this thing that they want to bestow upon you in this case, love. Right.
1: So you just don't accept it and it just never gets in. And all the hate becomes or the fear becomes bigger than the love.
0: Mm.
2: Sure.
1: And I realized I really wanted to help people and I really needed to help myself first. Mm. And I'm still working on helping myself, obviously. But when I discovered life mapping and visualization, Targeted towards being the person that I really want to be and living the life that I really want to live, things started to change uh, pretty quick using that tool.
0: For sure, and I want to get to that tool, but before I do, I want to hear a little bit about um, your story. Did you uh, around the personal development piece? Because it sounds like you had a tremendous mindset shift um, going from you know being fearful to now being wanting to help people. from wanting to die to now wanting to live for something. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a monumental shift. So did you jump into the personal development world or were you doing books? Were you doing seminars? What were you doing to, you know, to sort of support this change in your life?
2: Right.
1: Um, I was definitely reading a lot. I I still read a lot. It's a big habit of mine. I think I developed that uh, driving or uh, riding on minor league buses, a lot of time to kill. So I was reading a lot. Um, Seminars also too. There's a, seminar called PSI seminars. So it's run regionally kind of around the country, but I've been through their entire program as well It's very enlightening from an introspective standpoint of view. Mm-hmm. I've had, I've obviously hired coaches as well within the like personal development field outside of my dad, even though I still talk to him all the time. Right. <laughs> like I said, my number one coach. Right.
2: Um,
1: I wouldn't say I jumped into, and he's like, it wasn't even a thing when I, I didn't even thought about it as a career when I started working on myself. It was just, I wanted to like who I was. I wanted mm-hmm. to love who I was so that I could be accepting and believe people when they tell me that they love me.
0: Right. At what point in your life were you starting uh, the seminar work?
1: Um, I would say 2016, the whole, the end of 2015 was when the whole knee situation and heart thing were happening. Kind of August, September of 2015. And then into 2016, I was just, like I said, I'd started focused purely on physical, like getting back in shape.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> you know, food, exercise, water, sleep, all of those four things. I always harp on those four things with people. Right. Because they're just physical things that you 100% have control over and nobody else does. Right. Um, so I would say eight months of like really working on myself physically before I started delving into belief structures and um, deeper values and programs and you know automated things that are running my mentality in life and really kind of being aware of those things and paying attention to them and getting to the bottom of them through curiosity mm-hmm. um over judgment
0: so when you started in the the sci work um what was your initial impression? Were you open to, you know, being one of those people who needed to be fixed, you know, in the seminar or did you go in um, with an open mind? You know,
1: I, been, yeah, i had been working on myself for quite a while at that point, And I had opened my like coaching wellness business and I had been taking clients in that world and that sphere. So when I initially went to size seminars, my thought was to be there for the weekend and learn some stuff that I could help my clients with. Right. Cause I'm, you know, I'm all figured out, so I'll just pass this along to people who <laughs> need it.
2: <laughs> right, of course.
1: Right. So, uh, yeah, that was my initial thought. Uh, obviously, things those that, that changed pretty rapidly at SCI uh, seminars. Are you are you part of that? Have yeah. you been through the SCI seminars program?
0: I have. Yeah, I did CY, I started the SCI work in December of '08, and then in the following year, I did all the advanced courses as well. So I finished right uh, Principia that fall.
2: Mm, great.
0: Yeah. I uh,
1: I did, I was, 2016 I did the whole program. Nice. Yeah, it's a pretty intense year. Yeah. Pretty sure. intense year of like uh, learning about myself.
0: So, What were some of the things that you started to take away when you started to look at yourself? Like, uh, you know, I know when I went into the basic, you know, I I was only there because somebody gave me a two for one. Like I had this money program running that, you know, hey you know, uh, you know, uh, money is something that other people have. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, here's my friend calling me saying, you know what, I've got two for ones. And even in my scarcity mindset, I was able to say, okay, well, that's a good deal. And I'll, you know, I'll (laughs) go with my, you know, my now ex. and we ended up going, but that was the only reason that I went there. And then when I went there and I saw how the room was set up, I immediately had, you know, all my walls up because I felt like, you know, I didn't really need to be there. Like you, I had it all figured out. that quickly became, uh, you know, quickly became obvious that that wasn't the case. So, um, you know, in that seminar, I remember taking away some humility. That was one of the biggest things that I took away from that first step. And that's Mm -hmm. helped me, obviously, learn and grow and go forward. And then the same thing with seven and men's leadership and Principia. So I'm just wondering if there's, you know, a particular aspect of life that, that you that was impacted when you started like your basic and then went on went on to the advanced seminars from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, relationships are I, I think relationships with people are the number one thing. And like I, I've already kind of alluded to my connection to communities through baseball and then New Jersey and then kind of losing it, moving to L.A. and redeveloping it here in Denver, like kind of with a purpose when I moved here. Like <clears throat> I realize that in relationships, I'm just as competitive as I am when I'm on a baseball field, which mm-hmm. is not really a good thing. Well, not that it's not a good thing. It's just I have to be aware of it, right? Because as I mentioned, when I I think of winning as a way to bring love into my life, to get love, to get admiration, um, and all of those things, to the point where I'll create conflict or argument or f- fight or be contrarian to win, mm-hmm. to get love. I would be in a relationship with a person I was dating, or even a relationship. Outside of like a romantic relationship with my parents or my siblings or friends, where I will start an argument in order to win the argument and expect their love in return oh. as a result of me winning because that's how I would brought love into my life. That was my main way of getting love from people I see, so I'll still catch myself bickering or starting stupid little <clears throat> arguments, and <clears throat> I believe that that's me trying to get love through winning an argument with somebody. And that's a huge like interpersonal thing because obviously that doesn't work in relationships. The competitiveness, it's not a it's not really a teamwork attitude, it's a it's a I want to beat you attitude.
0: Right, of course. Yeah, there's no win-win yeah. there, right? So
1: No, exactly. It wasn't win-win. I was playing win-lose.
0: Gotcha. So I'm I'm curious there though cuz like, you know, obviously in that scenario you know, I think any outsider looking in is going to tell you, you know, hey, that's not going to fly. You know, you're not going to have someone love you because you beat them in an argument. So I'm just curious, you know, like aside from aside from the, the mismatch of, you know, applying sport to, say, a relationship, you know, how did you you know, how did you sort of recognize that you're creating problems by doing that? And then what did you do to change coming out of it?
1: Uh, I was actually doing, um the advanced work at, um, up at High Valley Ranch where I had that realization. And Obviously, I wouldn't want to get into any of what we were doing up there, but I was walking with a friend from one building to another and having a conversation about relationships and people. And during that conversation and all obviously all the work that's in- incorporated up there at the same time is where I had that uh, realization initially. And it blows me away today still how I, like, I'll catch myself doing it. And right. I've told, like, I've I've told my gr- current girlfriend all of this. Right. So she catches me doing it too. She's like, are you just fighting to beat me right now? <laughs> and I'll have to take a step back and think about if I am or not.
0: So when you were walking with that friend, was it something that just came to you or were you guys having a conversation and it triggered that realization for you?
1: It was a conversation back and forth about the way we were within our individual relationships in our lives. He's from California. I'm from, you know, I live in Denver now. So we were like, I didn't know him before that and we met and he was telling me about his life and his relationships. And I was telling him about my life and my relationships. And he was, he helped me have that realization. We were in the one plus one equals three, three you know, mode of, you know, growing off of each other and, we, I would say we had that realization together.
0: I see. So just yeah. in the course of talking through it, it's something that hit you. Yes,
1: yeah. yes.
0: Beautiful. It's cool, though, um, that you're able to, you know, have that awareness now, right? And when you go into, and you said, you know, with your current girlfriend, you're like, you know, hey, this is how I show up sometimes. And now she's yeah. kind yeah, of throwing exactly. it back in your face. But um, it's yeah. kind of cool <laughs> because it takes the power and takes the sting away, right? And do you find that... Um, you know, when you do get into that mode, that you can snap out of it more when, uh, now that you've shared that little piece of darkness about yourself with her.
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I can. And she, she can help me snap out of it too, because she can see it.
0: Right. Of course. <laughs> so
1: awareness is just, it's just, a, it's a first piece. It's a huge first piece. It's not everything. Like I said, I still will do it. I'll still jump into a competition mode.
0: Right. Yeah. I think, uh, getting rid of those hardwired programs, those things that, those behaviors that just continue to recur. It's one of the most difficult things to do. I don't know that they ever go away, but by shining light on them, right? You, you take some of your power back. And that's what I heard when you were telling me the example about how you shared with her, Hey, this is how I show up, you know, keep an eye on it, (laughs) you know, hold me accountable. Yeah, Like
1: like having, having in the back of my mind that there's a positive intention behind it was huge for me because I don't have to judge it. It's like, it may come off as kind of like, dickish sometimes but it's not like it's with the most positive like intention that there is even though on the surface it just looks like i'm starting a fight to start a fight
0: sure was that there is
1: a positive intention under it somewhere
0: definitely is was that at size seven or at mls that you're talking about it was at size seven size seven yeah what was um what was your big takeaway from from seven was it just the relationship piece um yeah i would say a lot of things i think
1: the difference between choices and decisions is a huge was a huge takeaway for me, and mm. like being cognizant of whether I'm choosing things in my life or whether I'm prejudging and deciding based on some on information that's not necessarily true or not based in a in a real experience that I've had. Do mm. you understand what I mean by that?
0: Yeah, break that down for me a little bit. Um, I think uh, people listening would really benefit from knowing the difference between those two.
1: Right. I think. Um, so to put it as simply as possible, we make decisions that are based on, you know, past experiences, things we've actually experienced, things people have told us, things we've heard, things that we've read about. We make choices just because that's what we choose to do. There's really nothing behind a choice. Mm. There's nothing behind a choice, actually. The, I think, like, learning that distinction and making that distinction in my regular, like, daily life has enabled me to look at the things I'm doing a little bit differently and put them into a bin of whether I'm, um, and like I said, prejudging based on something I've heard and it could be something like, uh, this is just an example of something stupid, but somebody could tell you, well, that uh, mile high stadium is, it's actually a dump. You, sh- you shouldn't go see a game there. And then, you would hear that and just assume that that's true because you, you like that person who told you that and you believe what you know, you trust them, you believe what they say. And you install that as a belief in your head, Miles High Stadium is a dump. It's not based on your experience or your knowledge, it's based on second hand info for somebody that just could have been having a bad day when they went there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you believe it or you take it in as real information and then you basically prejudging Mile High Stadium as a dump and then you're deciding not to go there ever. Whereas if you were just a person kind of exploring and you choose to go there just because you choose to go see it and make up your own mind about it, have an experience of your own and gain some knowledge, it's just a choice. And it's the thing that you're choosing to do.
0: So is, so is it that, um, decision in this particular instance, it always comes from some sort of prejudice, like you're, you're jaded because you heard or, or someone told you something, whereas choice is always coming from freedom
1: yeah and perhaps the inability to like separate it with our own within our own mind. so it's we have we have our lives are stacked of millions of individual experiences they're not like any of the other ones that we have Mm -hmm. and we have a tendency to have like one little experience and then amplify it to be a lesson that we can apply to a broad spectrum of things and that's it's really i don't think it's the right way to go through it. Like every situation is different than every situation that's ever happened before. Like every podcast interview that you do is different than everyone you've done before. Mm-hmm. Even if you ask the same questions that you ask in every interview, right? They're all going to be different.
0: So it's kind of that idea of you can never step in the same river twice because you know, the water's constantly flowing and the, the bed is constantly changing.
1: Yeah. And I think as we get older and we step into a lot of rooms, we start to think we stepped into every kind of room we can step into. Like, yeah, I've seen this before, seen it before, seen it before. I mean, it's kind of a jaded attitude. And it takes away from, like, the daily, like, the day-to-day kind of amazing stuff that happens because we look past it.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to see the same thing with fresh eyes, I think.
1: Yeah, which I don't... Baseball is interesting that way because there's no two games that are the same. i played in over a thousand games and they're all, they're all different. Right. You know?
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. They're all going to be different. um, And you're all playing, but you're all playing the same game, which is interesting. Right. And I think. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. And I think it's the same way as we, you know, extrapolate out and look at other parts of life. Right. Like you've mentioned relationships a few times, you know, how you're playing that game and what you've chosen into with your partner. Mm Mm-hmm right? Someone else might've made similar decisions, but their relationship might look completely different. And no matter how you slice it, the two relationships will never be equal. That's a really interesting way of looking at things when you think about how, I mean, when I walk around and I see people walking around, you know, inside their lives or, you know, inside the mall or a shopping area or the grocery store or whatever, I see people just kind of going through the motions, dead eyed and just like they seems like they're waiting for death to take them <laughs> in a lot of ways. Like yeah. there's there's nothing to look forward to anymore. Um, you see this is one of my favorite analogies analogies that I use with my wife in terms of the I don't want to bees is you know, you see the old couple at the diner, right? <laughs> and the, the guy's just sitting there, the old the old fat guy's just sitting there munching, you know, the old lady is just sitting there munching and they're not even speaking. They're not saying a right. word. They're not even looking at each other. It's like, I've heard everything you have to say. You've heard everything I had to say. (laughs) You know, we're just going to give it up. You know, there's no effort made to create a new situation on either party. And I'm like, look, you see those people over there? I never want to be that with you. So let's make sure that we're constantly doing something or, you know, regularly doing something to keep, you know, some sort of excitement in our life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Are you married? Did you say your wife?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've been
1: How how long have you been married?
0: I've been married since twenty twelve.
1: Okay. Pretty good pretty good chunk of time. How you feel? How do you feel about it? I've never been married. <laughs> I don't have. I don't have any experience whatsoever. <laughs> well
0: it's interesting, um you bring this up and I, I've told this story a million times, but you know, when um when my wife and I were dating, we were going through the side work at the same time and mm. For anyone listening, if you don't know what I mean by that, it's just the seminars put out by Size Seminars. So you can go check it out on their website and I'll put a link in the show notes. But basically, I was coming out of a really shitty relationship uh, going into Size 7, which is the first advanced course. Mm-hmm. And um, she was also looking for something new. So I went into Size 7 really raw and emotionally sort of flayed open. And um, I had nothing to lose. So I was just you know, going around, I was speaking to everyone. I was asking questions of everyone. I was, you know, just doing my best to connect and make some sort of impact and, you know, provide some provision of giving, you know, in the form of conversation or, you know, empathy or whatever the case called for, or even just sitting with someone at lunch that I didn't know. Right. And coming out of that relationship, I had been told a million times that, you know, I was worthless and that, you know, things weren't going to work out for me. And, you know, all my ideas were shit and, you know, all the rest of it. But then I go to size seven and we do the exercise where, you know, there's an exercise where you rank order people in terms of success from first mm, to last. Mm, right? Mm. Yep. And, um, you know, I, I ranked myself toward the end. You know, if not dead last, I was pretty close to last in terms of contribution. Right. Mm. But then when we went around and did uh, this exercise where you walk around the room and you look people in the face and you say, this person's a giver or this person's a taker. And then you have to write down how many people say you're a giver and how many people say you're a taker. Right. And, um, you know, out of the entire class, I won the most votes for giver. And so those two things didn't add up. Like, how could I be, you know, a giver, but at the same time be useless, be a taker, you know, Mm -hmm. be someone who, who didn't Mm -hmm. have value. So it caused me to question a lot of things. And, you know, I think, um, During the course of asking those questions, Christina and I, my wife and I, we had a lot of deep conversations at Size 7 and that sort of sealed our communication piece. And from there, um, going into uh, men's leadership and doing some work with Dr. Pat Allen, one of the interesting things that we did was we created a contract before we ever even went into our relationship. Excuse me. So we designed the relationship first and then entered into the relationship second, which I think a lot of people enter the relationship and then try to design try it. To
1: design, yeah, build it as you fly it. You're yeah. right.
0: And then when it doesn't work, they're like, you know, what the hell's going on here?
1: That's really cool. That's a cool idea. I like that. I'm going to pitch that to my girlfriend. I'm going to tell her.
0: Yeah. Get on it, man. Get on it for I'm sure. I'm going
1: to. I'm saying, my friend Jason's been married for 12 years. He has a <laughs>
2: relationship contract. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, we got to
1: ink down some terms.
0: That's it, man. Put down some clauses <laughs> and some terms. that's right we gotta
1: get to the negotiating table that's it we might need a mediator
0: we might need a mediator exactly have your people get in touch with my people (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's pretty funny like when i say that people laugh because they think it's so silly and i think it's
1: cool i think it's a good idea you're right it's it's better to be clear than to be trying to figure it out as you're going you're like oh i can't do that Oh, i just learned that i can't do that through like the worst way possible
0: yeah exactly you're in now right it's like what are you gonna do right yeah, a lot right. of turmoil. Right. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's the same with anything, right. It's about having a vision for what you want to create and then becoming the person or the people who can then step into that vision. At least Absolutely. that's how I see it, you know? And so yes. when we have those disagreements and we have plenty, you know, we fight just like anyone else, it comes down to, Hey, this is what you agreed to give me in this context of this relationship. This is what I chose into. This is what you chose into. Remember that? Remember our values kind of a thing. It's and great. it's really simple, you know, we just have a, it's just two pages that we wrote. It's not nothing formal, but it's a, it's a, it's a backbone that we can lean on whenever we're feeling weak or when one of us is, is not living up to, you know, our, our portion of the relationship. So it That's definitely fantastic. comes in handy.
1: I have this, uh, this kind of rule that I made up called the 200% rule. And it's, it kind it goes back to responsibility. Like all of us are responsible for our hundred percent of the pie when you're in a relationship with somebody and not just a romantic relationship but any any relationship business friendship family any relationship there's everybody each party has their 100 percent responsibility leading up to whatever situation is like happening at the time and Mm -hmm. there's no point in talking about whose fault it is or harping on you know fault or blame it's more about this is where we are and this is how we got here and this is how we're going to get from here to where we want to go as a team. And that's that's like a cooperative teammate attitude <clears throat> versus that I'm sitting across the table from you, like bickering kind of attitude, I guess.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful way of, uh, of looking at it because at the end of the day, right, all parties are responsible in the context of a relationship. Right it's uh it kind of harkens back to this idea that someone told me, and i don 't know where it came from and so i I apologize if someone's listening and you told me this, and I'm not giving you the proper credit but <laughs> no credit someone said uh you know it takes one person to have a good relationship, and for the longest time as i as I used to think that was total bullshit, and um you know i I liken it to my relationship with my mom because my mom and i we were we used to fight a lot. My mom's very in your face, very aggressive. And, you know, so now when I'm around her, I let her be who she is with no expectation. I'm, I have no expectation that she's going to change. Right. And so when I go into that relationship with her, I know that I'm the one that has to give. And when I choose to go into that relationship, I do the giving. Right. I give way because she's not going to change her mind. So why do I fight with her if I already know the outcome or if I have a pretty solid, you know, probability of what the outcome's going to be? I just let it be. And um, it was only then that I understood what that meant, and that's kind of to your point about the two hundred percent. I'm owning my share, but I'm also owning a part of hers as well, so that we both can enjoy something, you know, together. I get that's interesting.
1: You know, I've, uh, as I've explained that two hundred percent rule to people before, I've, I've said you can't, you know, you can't take a hundred and one percent, and you can't take ninety nine percent. You have to only take your hundred percent. But as you ex- as you explain that, I kind of see the merit of some give and take in certain situations where it's just like, you, you know, your mom better than anybody. I'm sure like, you know, that she's not going to give on it. So you're the
0: giver. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In that scenario, it's like you said, right. It's, it's all context dependent, right? I mean, that wouldn't work with everyone. So I don't recommend you right, run around right, just giving right. Right? <laughs> right. In that in the context. Yeah. All
2: your relationships.
0: Yeah. It's about getting what you want, right? Like, you know like with you and your girlfriend you know there's a certain way that you want to be with her and there's a certain value that you want to pull from that relationship and a certain value that she's expecting you to give right yes. and when you are around her you either do those things or you don't and either doing those things or don't is the difference between you getting what you want or not so if i want to spend time with my mom just to use this context since i already went down this this road mm-hmm. i have to be the one to sort of let it roll off my back you know to to not be so concerned with what someone says or you know to be the one who runs the errands or you know gives in in the conversation right I'm not going to fight her on any of that and that's just so that I can get what I want which is to be close to her so in a way it's a it's a win-win it's it's what creates a win-win in that particular scenario because we both get a good experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it take, and it's just you making a concession. So it takes one person to make a good relationship. That's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, it definitely uh, was quite the mind fuck for many years. But I've, I think I, yeah, when I, you think first I have an understanding that, of it.
1: When you first said that, I was thinking that I was like, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: what I thought for I, many years.
1: Then I, the, my initial thought was, It's about internal relationship, like how your relationship is with yourself. Mm, You can't have a good relationship until you have the good relationship with yourself.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, to put it in your terms, right? Like you were talking about how competitive you can be in the context of a relationship. And it's not that you have any ill will. It's just, hey, this is how I think I'm going to win love, right? That's what I heard you say. And and so it's it's the same sort of thing. Like, um, you know, do I want to go in and be competitive and create... A negative situation or do i just want to you know create what i know or act in a way that or act in a way that i'm fairly positive is going to generate a good result and the answer becomes easy at that point because like i don't want to fight with anyone especially not my mom so yeah, yeah. You know, why bother with that you know
1: right exactly that's letting go you let go
0: exactly absolutely <laughs> It's a, it's, sure. um, it's interesting stuff, man. It's, uh, you can, you can go a lot of different directions with it, but I think, you know, and I think you're going to talk to this point in here in just a second, when you start talking about the life mapping, but having the vision of what you want to create is everything, right? Cause yeah, if, absolutely. if I wanted to, if I want to have a good relationship and I, it, and I don't know what that looks like, then there's no way that I can create that, right? If I want to have a, a good business or, um, you know, if I want to have a good body or a good physique or a good diet, and I don't know what that looks like, then it's impossible for me to create that. And, um, I know that, you know, this coming off the work and and doing some of the work that you're, uh, that you're into right now. So maybe this is a good time for you to start taking us down the path of what life mapping is and how you're using this tool to help people change their lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, That was a great setup too, by the way. You're right. It's, it's a creative process that we're all engaged in, whether we like it or not. Like we're all creating our lives, whether they're going great or going poorly, they're being created by us. So what a life map is, is simply a tool to help tell a different story. And it's a, it's a really simple visual exercise in that we deli- I mean, we deliver an 11 by 17 poster size map that's based on four categories, ideal self, challenges, ideal future, and tasks. We take a person through a process that, you know, comes up with some future attributes based on those areas. And then they pick a blank map template that they resonate with just solely based on intuition. And then we put the results from the workbook onto that map, and then we deliver that product to them. So the tool itself has a story layered into it, but it's up to the person who makes the map to kind of develop the story and tell it to themselves and other people. Mm. It's all based on the idea that we're telling ourselves a story. We have a narrative running in our head about ourselves all the time. For a lot of us, it can be negative. Like I said, the most powerful things that we say are often things that we're saying inside of our heads to ourselves. Right. So this tool, by getting clear on ideal self, who you wanna be, challenges, like what stands in the way from who you are now and that person. Ideal future, like what type of life do you wanna live? Like at the end of your life, what do you wanna say you were able to accomplish? And tasks, which are like two to five years, goals. What do you need to do in the next two to five years? for you to be headed in the direction of living this life and being that person. And by literally taking what's really important to you and putting it into that context and then telling yourself a story about that, you can have that narrative running in your head, creating that life that you really want to live your ideal life.
0: And so this is a tool that then you would basically keep in some place that you could see it and review it regularly so that you stay on track or how does it work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have people that hang them on their walls. We have people that use them digitally because we also deliver PDF version of them. Um, so it's a matter of how you want to use them. I've, I use mine personally as a meditation device. Mm-hmm. If meditation is about understanding yourself, creating the life you want to live. By putting this poster-sized life map on the table that has all of the things that are important to me creating on it, I can focus myself in that story and think about it as I meditate.
0: That's really cool. So um, so talk me through uh, like a meditation for you, a typical medica- meditation. So you, I'm assuming, have your life map drawn up. You've, you've got it in front of you you've, or you've got a visual on what it is and, and what you want to create. But then what does your meditation look like in terms of incorporating that? Are you talking to yourself and walking yourself through the life map or are you just meditating on like the thoughts of it? How does it look uh, for you?
1: Some of each. Um, I have an individual place on my life but on my life map that has my workshop as well. So there's a part of my and that's a side turn or side. Well, it's not really a side. It came from Napoleon Hilden in "Think and Grow Rich," the workshop of the mind mm-hmm. tool um, that's represented on my map. So I can see myself walking down a road that is on the map to a door that is on the map. And opening the door and stepping into that door as part of the visualization and that's me literally walking around on my life map in my head but everything else that's on the map obviously has a story and is a representative of who i am
2: mm-hmm.
1: so when i picked this map it was blank like i said it's just a blank template we have 20 of these templates they all look like really different but the idea being that you'll intuitively react with the right the map that's right for you and on some subconscious level you see everything that's on the map. So you take it all in. But consciously you're not really aware of it as you're picking. So as I'm picking this map there's things that my brain sees. Like I saw myself in this picture and my brain saw all the things around this map and this story that's there. I'm kind of using it as a tool to draw out the story and tell it to myself. So it's layered with the things that I consciously want to create from the workbook you know ideal self ideal future challenges and tasks on top of you know intuitively what my brain sees as an important image or an image that i like at the very least and having both of those things together in a tangible like like i said 11 by 17 size poster like just creates a visual tool for my life it's the ball mm. for my life back to the baseball analogy of what's the ball right like if I'm going to keep my eye on the ball playing this game of life, what does that mean? Mm. To me, it means everything that I've created, all the story that I put into my life map now, and I've been using it for a few years. Now that I have that tool and I put that story on there, I've been creating the ball for myself.
0: I see. So what was your first exposure to this idea of life mapping? it sounds similar to, you know, like a dream board or a vision board, yeah. but, yeah, but with yeah. more Barry, direction.
1: That is very. visualization. You're right.
0: Yeah. But, um, I, but I like the aspect that you're describing of having like a clear direction on it. So um, you know, talk a little bit about the differences and in, in how you discovered this particular tool.
1: Right. Um my my like history with vision boards is pretty limited, although I have made them before. Um <clears throat> it is about like installing images to your subconscious mind or stories to your subconscious mind. So the 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 reason a vision board works is I mean, it's confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. The more you tell yourself something, the more that something can happen.
2: Right.
1: Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) The more you see that (laughs) thing, it's like, uh, yeah, we just train ourselves, our brains that way. And a lot of our training or the things we've learned is narrative based, Even even through our own stories. Like the lessons that I've learned, the lessons that you've learned through the things that have happened to you in your life are because of the story that happened. Like you live some story and you learn some lesson at the end of it. And that's like a tangible knowledge. But it's a story that you tell yourself. So this is like if a person is unhappy or lost or confused or unsure about themselves, or unconfident or hates themselves, the person that hates themselves who has a lot of energy on that, perfect person to make a life map. Because a life map is really just about designing who you want to be and understanding who you are. It's about establishing point A and point B. Who are you? Where do you want to be? How are you going to get there? And it's all on one picture. And you can share that with somebody else and get feedback from somebody else on how you can get there. And it makes it a connection tool. Mm. What like some of the most powerful conversations I've had around my life map have been with my nieces and nephews who are very young. So I open up my life map and I tell them about the person that I'm creating and how the story that I'm telling using not only the terrain that's on the map, but the concepts that are there, the words that are there and they understand me better than they would if I didn't have that tool. Right. And I connect with them on a deeper level Mm. and they give me feedback about the story that I'm telling. So they learn about me and when they give me feedback, I learn about me too.
0: Right. Got it. I
1: think the more we go into this, like down this digital road, the less and less human connection is happening at like a deep level. And this is, a, this is a tool that can actually help with that too.
0: Nice. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. It's, it's not real connection when you're communicating on Facebook or whatever the case may be. There's there's too much lacking. Um, but yeah, it's interesting the way that you frame that when you're talking about how you can use it to connect with other people. Um, so you're, you're sharing it, you said your nieces and nephews?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really like those conversations, but I've shared it with all types of people now. Right, but it's it's oh.
0: also it's also like uh yeah, I was just gonna say that very thing, right? Like you, you know, you, nieces, nephews, you coaches, whatever the case may be. But Absolutely. It, it's also, I think, in those moments when you're working with younger people, it sounds like an opportunity to impact their lives tremendously as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't have kids of my own, but my nieces and nephew like look up to me in a way that really wants like it makes me want to communicate with them. It's like the type of things that I've learned, or who I am as a person. So they like really know me, whether I'm there all the time or not. Right. And I'm not there all the time. They live in New Jersey. I'm in Denver.
2: Right.
1: So the fact that they can see this picture and kind of get a an idea, a deeper picture of who I am or how I see myself and the ideal version of myself, who I'm working on creating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the more, the better they get to know me. Right. And it's just like a it's a hard, it's a hard thing to communicate to somebody without an image, especially, and to communicate it to yourself too, right? Because I'm basically trying to tell myself this story about this person that I'm creating, that I'm designing out of thin air. And if I don't have the picture to go along with it, it's like, wait, what am I, who am I trying to meet? What am I about again? What am I doing? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You get, it's easy to get lost with all the distractions in the modern world for sure. But even with that, you know, not having a compass or in, in your case, you use the analogy of keeping your eye on the ball, right? Not knowing what that is. I think the way you framed it was not knowing what the ball was in life, like in your real life. You know, this is something that I sort of referenced earlier when people, when I said people are walking through life, it's kind of dead eyed waiting for death. You know, it's like they've given up, they don't know what they're doing, but the reality of it is at any point you can make a new decision and, and go for a bigger, better version of yourself or a life that you want to create. And with this particular tool, it sounds different from like your standard dream board-ish thing where you just slap some photos up there and that there, it sounds like there's some built-in accountability. I think a lot of the complaints with, you know, like vision boards and stuff like that is like, well, you know, just putting a picture on your wall isn't going to make you rich or make you famous or make you right. well-liked or or any of it. It's what you do about creating those things. And so, um, Yes. and so how does every
1: single Every single person that I have, like, told my story to using my life map, they understand the person I'm trying to create. So if I tell them, like, it's my desire to create a deeply loving, like, connected person, and they see me not being that person, they can they can hold me accountable right there. I oh, remember mm. that life map that you showed me where you are talking about how you're being a loving person. How are you being that person right now? Right. That's a really simple question. That would be really hard to answer if I wasn't being loving. And they can't ask that question if they don't know that that's the person that I'm trying to create. Right. And the only reason I know that that's the person I'm trying to create is because I've showed them that mm. on a picture.
0: Right. And so have you had people come up to you and do that, on a, you know, uh, on, a, on a regular uh, not basis? Not the
1: loving thing specifically, <laughs> but I've had people like looking at my life map and trying to, un- trying to you know, put the vision they have of me, uh, like reconcile the vision they have for me with the vision that they see on the piece of paper, like how I see myself.
0: Oh, I see.
1: And talk see. about specific concepts that I've put on there.
0: Right. So on, on your particular um, life map, what does it look like? What's your, where are you sure, taking, a, where are you so, driving you?
1: It is a, so picture a two-sided valley with a lake in the northeast corner and the entire valley is surrounded by a huge mountain range. Okay. And then at the bottom left, so the southwest corner is a, is an opening where a river flows out. And it flows from the lake in the northeast all the way out of the mountain range through the gap in the mountains at the southeast. It's a big mountain range surrounding this two-sided valley with a river splitting it, coming from that lake in the northeast. And the story that I've kind of created, and it's kind of laid out this way, is the ideal my ideal future characteristics, the things that I like really want to accomplish in my life, the big things are on the mountain range that's surrounding this valley. And as I do those things or work towards those things, the runoff fills up the sea, the lake that's there. It's called the Sea of Wealth, Mm W-E-L-L-T-H. And then that fertilizes the two sides of the valley, which were initially labeled helper and capitalist. And that river flows out from the sea straight through. And that gap in the mountains is where I try to approach the world.
0: So the gap in the mountains where you're trying to approach the world, meaning what specifically?
1: It's like, uh, so if somebody was to walk up to this scene, right, mm-hmm. to this land right. that's on the map, they'd see mountains basically all the way around it. Right. But if you come from the southeast corner, there's this gap you can walk through into the valley, right? Right along the river into the valley. Right. And that's the area where I try to approach the world. And it's the area, it's love. It's all related through love. Gotcha. And the idea is that I'm approaching people from the Southwest, from the loving area. Mm. And if people come to me from somewhere else, they're just going to see mountains.
0: (laughs) I see. So you're kind of like boxing out, (laughs) you're boxing out the negative and um, only only allowing in the people that you feel like are coming at you with like a true intention for your well-being and your affection for you and that sort of thing. Yes. I like it, man. That's cool. Yes.
1: Yeah. I'll send you a picture of, actually, of my life map that you can attach to the podcast if you want. I don't know if that works.
0: Yeah, definitely do that. Uh, I would love to, I'd love to see it and uh, also include it. Maybe even make it part of the graphic for sure. Um, yeah, that'd
1: be great. Actually, I can send you like my original life map and then I can send you like what, like, cause it's printed out. It's on paper and I tell people it's best if you like, make it your own through some type of editing process whatever you choose that to be so i've like drawn and written and changed where i've done all kinds of things on my life map so i'll send you like the picture with all the stuff on it too so you can kind of see how somebody would use it so mm-hmm. as i'm like thinking about myself and it's on the table and i'm doing the meditation process i'm telling myself the story and things come up and i talk to different people and i have different insights about myself i'll change things and i'll edit it and i'll add and i'll draw and it's a piece of art that's kind of living and growing.
0: Nice. That's cool. I, use it. I like that. So you can sort of, you know, build it or alter it on the fly, if you will. As Yeah, as, right.
1: As it's kind of a, so the first life map that gets delivered is really kind of a rough draft. It's so like your story keeps evolving and so is this if you use it to tell it.
0: Mm. So, um, so I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what a life map is. Um, but tell me a little bit about the technology, the mental processes that go into you know, the creation of this tool, um, right. you know, obviously visualization, I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be one and then knowing your baselines. Right. But what else is going to be going into that?
1: So the the bulk of the coaching program that's laid out with the life map is it's neuro-linguistic programming based. Okay. NLP. Are you familiar with that?
0: Yeah, I am actually.
1: Yeah. Right on. So again, it's based on the words that we're telling ourselves, the stories that we're telling ourselves, how we're talking to ourselves, we have an entire like a six-week story program to develop the life map further and have a deeper, deeper like meaningful connection to it. Mm-hmm. Reconcile differences between you know reality now and the story that's being creative. Obviously, part of that is homework and telling your story to people and kind of developing it further. <clears> that's <throat> all secondary to the life map tool itself because okay. <clears throat> you know. Anybody can purchase, you know, download the life mapping starter package on our website and just follow the directions and you'll have a life map delivered to you once you complete the workbook. Um, Like anybody can do that now. It's on our website. It's easy. The work, the talking to somebody about it, preferably a coach who's going to walk you through it the right way, developing the story long term over time, like that all is the work that's involved. It's like you said, it's, it's great to have the vision. Like There has to be like some work that goes into it, too.
0: Right, of course.
1: And that's kind of what the program is with it.
0: Okay. With
1: so that not... being said, the tool itself can be used just as it is for the low upfront cost and used without coaching and used just as I've explained it so far. You can still tell that story. You can show it to people. You can get feedback. You can learn about yourself. You can start to realize what's driving you, what's there, how you can become that person, you can tell yourself that story.
0: Of course. So you've got a standalone tool. You've got a coaching program that goes along with it that's NLP-based, which is super powerful stuff. Uh, for those of you guys who haven't looked it up, we'll definitely link up uh, some NLP stuff in the show notes. And the technologies around the um, the usage of the tool in terms of modifying it, uh, sharing it, um, You know, having a baseline versus having targets, I'm assuming the coaching program Kind of goes into depth about how all of that stuff is set up.
1: Absolutely, and we—I didn't talk much about the task section, the two to five-year goal section. That's a, that's looking a little bit further into the future than most people are maybe used to doing on a on like a daily basis. Um, but yeah, it's about working towards creating the person that shows up in the picture. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we want to make like an ideal mirror. Is what this map is. And since it's a hard copy, like, it really isn't technology-based. Like, we, the life mapping starter package starts on our website. It's downloaded. I mean, that part is technology, but we deliver a hard copy, and we deliver the PDF digitally. So it's really about, like, using the tangible picture, the device, to tell the story and to show it to other people. And having the hard copy, like the paper copy, to unroll it and put it in front of somebody else and talk about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's an offline process. Right. That's about connecting with somebody for real. Right. Like putting your phones away. You might look at this picture together and share the story of who you want to be.
0: Yeah. That's super powerful. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, new research coming out about the ineffective nature of, you know, having things like this on technology versus having a hard copy in real life that you can see, touch and feel. And, um, I saw a news piece recently about a school. I forget exactly where it was, but they started going back away from allowing the kids to use laptops and tablets in class, getting back to, you know, like paper and pencil because their retention was, was so much higher using the old school techniques. So I can definitely see use of usage for it there. And then of course the connection piece is like icing on the cake. And, um, you know, once you've got all this set up, You know, what is your ultimate goal with the, you know, with the uh, life map? Do you keep sharing it with people? Does it keep evolving or is it once you hit your target, it goes away or how does it work?
1: Um, I would say that if it's done correctly, like if the starter package, the workbook is followed correctly, it's written in such a way that you're thinking about things from the end of your life backwards. And it's kind of a reverse engineering process. So it should be a product that's viable for the r- remainder of your life. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, it's a tool that keeps developing and the more you show it to people or the more you look at it, the more things develop and the more of the story appears and insight happens and self-understanding. And ultimately, self-love would be great. got it. <laughs> right? If you right. understand the story that you're telling and the person you're trying to become and you're working on every day, I think it would be hard to not love
0: yourself. Right, for sure. So tell me, what will success look like for you over the course of operating inside the context of this project? I mean, obviously, I'm sure you want to get this in as many people's hands as possible, but um, how are you going to end up measuring success?
1: I I think it's purely based on the amount of life maps that we make in the country. This whole process has kind of come from Australia. I didn't really get into how I came across this process, but my partner, Jim Brown, is the creator of Life Mapping, and he developed this whole process in Australia. So every life map that's made in the United States is really a a product of uh, of me reaching out to people. Really? So based on the number of life maps that we're able to make in the country is the number of people that I'm able to reach. And the more people that I can talk to in podcast settings and reach like larger scale audiences, the better, because people just don't know about it. People have heard about vision maps and the power of visualization for a while now, but nobody's heard about life mapping here yet.
0: Right, right. So, well, uh, people I've talked to. so, I mean, I've heard the term life mapping before, and I honestly, I don't know um, that much about it other than, you know, what you've shared with me today. I knew it was a, a tool to, you know, identify some of the things that you want to create in your life, but that's about the extent of it. So is your partner, Jim, is he, uh, does he have like a proprietary take on this? Because I know if I do a search for life mapping, I'm going to get like a bazillion different results you know, on the old interwebs here.
1: I mean, the project, the product that we're putting out and the things that we're creating are all trademarked. life mapping. And it's our, it's yeah, it's created by Jim. It's proprietary to us, the maps that we use, the templates that we use, the process that we use, the workbook, the coaching, everything's created by him and I kind of together. So, yeah, I mean, life mapping, mind mapping, mapping is like, it's a concept as old as, you know, anything else is well, as long as people have been trying to see things from a broader perspective, they've been creating maps, right? So, I mean, I'm not surprised that there's been other iterations of life mapping, but this, what we're doing, what I'm doing is new to the U.S. Gotcha, and it's our and it's our proprietary thing.
0: Very cool, very cool. It's
1: really just him and I and the coaches that we've trained here so far. And how it's did a very limited number?
0: I
2: see. Six. And
1: There's how, six life mapping coaches in the U.S. right now.
0: Okay, wow, six—only six. Wow. How did you and yep. Jim uh, ultimately end up connecting?
1: I wrote an article um, that was written towards like um, retiring baseball players on a website called Baseball and Business, and it was about coaching and what I was doing within my kind of health and wellness practice at the time. And he read the article and wanted to tell me about life mapping, and ultimately, like along you know, a couple of years later, he still, he still coaches me. Like I have a meeting with him after this about life mapping and we made our life map or my life map together and he's helped me develop my story and ultimately we decided like I saw what a powerful tool this is and I decided to go into business with him with life mapping and to bring this whole process to the United States.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So the plan then is just to continue to uh, expand uh, your affiliates here, or you plan to, yes, to create right. more coaches? Uh, my, my,
1: uh, yeah, my plan is to travel around, introducing people to life mapping, as well as training coaches along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, part of my life map and part of my vision for my near future is to create a life that's 100% travel, like on the road full time. Okay. So over the past since March uh, another friend and I have been building a Toyota tundra into a tiny house that I can live in <laughs> really Yeah so uh, yeah we've been building that in Lakewood, uh, Colorado here. We're just about to the point where we'll be mounting it on the truck. So it's been a, that's been a long part of the journey. but uh, yeah my goal is to travel around full- time teaching people about life mapping. And training coaches along the way.
0: That's amazing. A, kind
1: of a clockwise trip planned around the country.
0: So before I ask my last question, uh, tell the folks listening how they can get in touch with you or get their hands on a copy of the life mapping program.
1: Right on. If you go to a life mapping dot me, that's the best resource. There's a little bit of everything on there. My cell phone and email are there. Jim's email is there. Um, We do have an informational meeting on Monday nights at 7.30 Denver time that anybody is welcome to join. If you reach out to either Jim or I, we can set you up with a link for that as well.
0: Very cool, my friend. And that's
1: just kind of anybody's welcome to that meeting. We just talk about life for a half hour.
0: Awesome. And uh, you said it's open to the public. So um, do you guys, do you guys, are you, are you basically going over a uh, sort of an overview of the life mapping program? Are you taking questions? How does it work?
1: It totally depends on who shows up to the meeting, so we kind of customize it. If the people that are at the meeting already have life maps, it's a little bit of a different discussion than if people have never heard about life mapping.
2: We
0: okay. have
1: people from all across the board. We just try to keep it kind of general with mentions about life mapping and what it is and how to get involved with it.
0: Very cool. I'll definitely have to get that link for you uh, or from you, I should say, and uh, you know, I'll get all this stuff in the show notes so that everyone can reach out who is interested and check you guys out and uh, get a copy of the life mapping program if they are so inclined. So the last question, my friend is always the same. And that's simply this. What does wellness mean to you?
1: Mm. Wellness means being internally fulfilled, regardless of external circumstances.
0: Beautiful. I love it, man. I don't think anyone's described it that way before. So (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I always love when I get a new definition. It's funny. People think they know what words mean. And until you ask them what they mean and you get 15 different responses (laughs) and (laughs) and a lot of times they're all valid. So no, I appreciate that, man. That's very beautiful. I want to, I want to take a moment and just say, thank you. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing your story. Um, Thanks for talking to us about life mapping. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so
1: much, Jason. I really appreciate you having me and taking the time and your mission of arming people with the tools. I I hope life mapping is a tool that your audience can use. Or is interested
0: in. Definitely my friend I'll definitely uh link it up and um you know I I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious myself so maybe I can uh, get a copy of it and dive through it and be a better uh be better able to recommend it to people in need. So mm, absolutely. Uh, we, can, we can talk about that but absolutely man appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for um for sharing your story and uh taking us down your journey. Um I know it's been uh, an interesting one as as most people's <laughs> lives are. But I'm glad you're doing well, man. I'm glad to hear that you've got this new business going off. And I'm happy to know you and have you in my life now. So for all of you guys listening, on behalf of Tim and myself, this is Jason Archer signing off. And we'll see you guys in the next episode.